David Fair. Finally, how are, how are you? I am doing very, very well. Good to see you. Thank you so much. That's such short notice and so on. You, you, I int- extended the invitation and you were, you obliged me. So I am so happy that you were able to join in for the podcast interview today. Or for the, no problem. I, 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 I have two, I have two, two big dogs who may interfere from time to time. I just want to apologize in advance for that. Oh, and that's fine. But um, we're so happy to have you. And I see that. Um, but let me begin officially before. Actually, I see that we went to the same school. We went. To, we both went to University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and, a little, um, bit, little bit different periods, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just like I forty years apart. I think. Oh yes, yes, definitely. But and we both work. Well, I have worked in child, youth, and family services, and of course, I see that you have. You you have worked at the, at the highest level in child youth and family services in Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So I have to ask you a question: Do you consider yourself a neoliberal, or do you just study neoliberalism? I just study it. It's just a it's just a, I I study strategy. I I wrote a book on neoliberalism, globalization, um, income inequality, poverty, and resistance. Looking right, yeah. at yeah, so it's more looking at strategy. And when people ask me about that, it gives me a great opportunity to talk about the dynamics of the global north and the global south, how income inequality and how poverty was created through social adjustment policies and, you know, how those policies affect people of the global okay. south and the diaspora. Yes. So it's just a strategy. Okay. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay. Uh, so neoliberalism come- is not one of my, neoliberalism is not one of my favorite uh, approaches to social issues but uh... <laughs> yeah but that was part of my thesis at Penn and um, but now I'm looking at power position and status and how it create how power uses strategies that poses problems for progress you know that's wow. that's what that and I'm all these, all these all these minor issues you try to deal with I don't understand yes <laughs> <laughs> yes but we're so I'm so happy to have you man and um I've I follow you just so you know. I, mean, I read your stuff, so I saw that you got you were interviewed um, by um, H by HBO yesterday. But um, let me begin uh, officially. My na- welcome to the Neoliberal Round Podcast, everyone. I am Ronaldo McKenzie, and today we have with us Mr. David Fair, who recently said on LinkedIn in a posting um, in a posting on LinkedIn, "I'm humbled to have been interviewed by." by a TV crew from HBO for the third series of Eyes on the Prize, the award-winning documentary series telling the stories of the civil rights movement in the U.S. The first two series were broadcasted in the 80s and covered up to 1985, and the new series will be broadcasted next year, and um, you said they will pick up from there. So now, but before I I ask you about um, the new series... Um, which is to come, which um, which you probably have, you may have probably seen it already. I'm not sure, but they're working on it, I presume. Yeah. But um, before yeah. I ask you, I would, I was, let me say, welcome to the show, and I will, we, we, I would love to learn a little bit about you. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to be with you. What Thank would you, you like to know? Well, a um, little bit about um, your involvement in the film, because I, you know, when I at first I thought you were a producer. But then um, 
So I wasn't sure. So no. the first question I wanted to ask you is your involvement in the film and and how you how are you involved in the film? How are you involved? Well, well, they're picking what what the what HBO is doing with this new series is picking up where the previous series of Eyes and the Prize left off, which was 1985, and around that time in the, in the mid 1980s was when the controversies around the AIDS epidemic were at their height. And in Philadelphia, unlike in other big cities like New York and San Francisco, or even Miami, um, from the very beginning of the epidemic, the number of pe the, the, the people who were getting, well, at that time, we, we didn't know what to call it, but what we would now call HIV disease, were they, was, they were mostly gay white men, but there was a large number, a much higher percentage of people of color, especially African-American yeah. people, who were being diagnosed with this disease in Philadelphia. And that led to a lot of controversy because in, in, the, mid, in the mid 1980s, pretty much the only, Reagan was president and he didn't give a damn about AIDS. And yeah. so the only work that was really being done to help people with AIDS and to prevent the spread of AIDS was being done in the gay white community, which uh, had the resources to be able to do that. Yes. In Philadelphia, those of us who were involved, you know, at that time I was working for a predominantly black union called the Hospital Workers Union in Philadelphia. And the that and so we were our members of the union. Yeah. A lot of whom were gay people um, were having resistance, were, get, were putting up resistance to caring for people with AIDS because they didn't know whether they could catch the disease by emptying yeah. their trash can or transporting them to an operating room or whatever. And so early on, where I was sitting, I was one of the few white leaders of that union. Um, I learned. Um, being a gay white man myself, I knew a lot about AIDS, but I learned that there was a whole dynamic around how AIDS was playing out in the African-American and Latino communities that the gay white community was ignorant of, and not only uh, ignorant of, but really resistant to understanding because of the fear that if we extended the, if we, if we started talking about the AIDS crisis crisis as affecting more than gay white men, then there would be fewer resources for gay people and more resources for the non-gay people who were not, not white. And the, uh, even though most of the AIDS cases then and now in the black community are still among gay, gay people. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the, there were major controversies around that at the time. And um, I was one of the loudest voices complaining about the racism, basically, of the white gay community and how it addressed AIDS, which I felt was my job because I was white. It's not, it's, doesn't, yes. I've never believed that it's up to black people to solve the problem of racism. It's up to white people to solve the problem of racism. Yeah. It's our problem. And um, that attracted a lot of attention. I got a lot of media attention. And somehow or another, it came to the attention of the HBO producer, producers of this um, new series um, who wanted to talk to me about 
what it was like at that time and to help them connect to people of color, especially who were involved in that advocacy in the mid 1980s and late 1980s. So that's how it all developed that we got involved in this new, new video. Right, and I think, um, but you also, I think um, if I were to read you correctly, you also, you said that, um, you said that the first installment of the series includes a segment on the struggle to combat AIDS and in the black community and the resistance of the AIDS bureaucracy to the empowerment of people of color in the AIDS movement. And so this is, that was quite interesting. So as I, if I, and of course, we're going to eyes on the prize for people who are not aware of eyes on the prize, the whole, the film or the series or the production. Um, I wanted the first, so I think you said the first two looks at the civil rights and segregation, civil rights yes. and segregation. Yes. And that's what's the time period for that one. Right. And that went from the 19th century all the way up to 1985. Um, uh, Eyes on the Prize was mostly focused. There were two series. There were two years, two seasons of Eyes on the Prize back in the late 80s. And the first series covered up till 1965 when the Civil Rights Act was passed by Congress. Okay. Um, the second series went from 1965 to 1985 and talked a lot more about the Black Power Movement, um, about the, the um, race riots that were happening, especially in the late 1960s. Um, and they also talked about the fact that the Civil Rights Movement became less, both less popular as well as less effective after the 1960s. In the early uh, 1970s, um, because the power structure basically learned learned that it could find it could continue to hide. In my opinion, this is just my opinion. It, right. it could continue to cloak racist, racist activities and racist business practices and racist real estate practices and all that kind of stuff. You know, they could they could put it in a different context. Whereas in the previous iteration of this stuff in the 60s and 50s, um, it was easy to make the distinction between uh, fairness and not un unfairness. By the yes. 1970s, a conscious effort was being made by white politicians to yes. feed into the grievance of white people who felt like black people were getting all of the benefits of Jeez. government. And, and didn't have to work for them. I mean, it was a classic racist kind of attitude. Um, and that's what, that's what the second series of Eyes in the Prize focused on. Um, I don't know exactly how they're handling the new series. All I know about is the sec segment that they were filming in Philadelphia right. um, okay. over the last few days. But um, I, I imagine that it's not gonna cover from 1985 Right. George Floyd, it'll probably yes. cover from 1985 to maybe the early 2000s because they, they right. only have six episodes, I think, and they have to get a lot in. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And um, it's quite interesting that, you know, one of the things that you just said, which um, I wanted to piggyback on, go back to, was, you know, which is very important, the issue of racism of the white gay community 
as it relates to how it, that affected it, um, HIV, AIDS, and, and care in African towards African Americans. And you know, when we think when we think about discrimination and so on, and when we think about racism, usually people just think black and white. But here we are. You have you said white gay community. There was also within within the gay community some level of racism, which oh, may have okay and. I mean, I think I think I've always thought of of the white gay community in Philadelphia as being like a small southern town. It was yes. like it's changed a lot in the last ten or fifteen years. But back in the day, um, the only people of color you ever saw in gay community organizations or gay community events or the gay bars or other kinds of institutions in the gay community, the only people of color you saw uh, were those who had white lovers. Yes. You know, and, they, and they were not necessarily, and not all of them obviously, but they were not necessarily seeing themselves as activists for the black community mm-hmm. um, because of the sexual preferences that they had. Um, right. They also right. tended to be people of some means. You know, yes. you had people, the only, you know, what struck me in the, in the 80s um, as a gay activist was the only black people that the typical gay white man interacted with besides those who happened to be well-off and have well-off black gay lovers um, was young black gay people who were tussling, yeah. who were prostituting themselves and right. were, and were, and were, were uh, being patronized by white gay men, you know, yes. they, in fact, we even had a situation that occurred in the 80s where we started a group called the Ehrman Center, which was a mental health center, created a group home for gay yes. kids. And okay. most of the gay kids that came into the group home were the ones who were homeless and they were mostly African-American. And mm-hmm. the moment that that program of the Ehrman Center was created, there was major yeah. pressure from the white gay community to close the Ehrman Center because it was like, why are we spending our money on these young black kids? You know, there was just no recognition of how fundamentally racist the whole structure right. of the gay movement was in those days. I mean, that's yes. changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years, but um, yes. and now the language at least has changed. I don't know that the racism has changed. We've gotten any right. better, but the language has changed certainly. And the, and the political correctness is a lot stronger today than it ever was back then. But that was a major struggle for those of us who, who and, and you know, I was, remember I was working at a predominantly black union. So it mattered to me in a way it didn't necessarily matter to other white people. Yeah. I belonged to a basically black community of healthcare workers. And yeah. um, that gave me a perspective, I think, that was different than the t- typical white person. And they're yes. the ones who taught me that they weren't going to fix this problem for me. I had to go into the white gay community as a white gay man and try to yeah. solve this problem. Okay. And you know, and you said that resist the resistance of the AIDS bureaucracy. You said that the struggle to combat AIDS in the black community. And you talked about and you said you mentioned this, the resistance of the AIDS bureaucracy to right. the empowerment of people of color. Now, so my, the question is, 
what do you mean by the resistance of the AIDS? What was the kind of the bureaucracy here? Well, the bureaucracy initially was really, um, the bureaucracy was original, originally organizations created in the white gay community to combat AIDS because there was no okay. government, there was no government response. So I'm not talking about government agencies initially. We're talking about the fact that the white gay community was getting decimated by AIDS and created its own organizations to right. help other white gay people who had AIDS. And they early and, and there was no government money. I mean, today there's tens of millions of dollars being spent in Philadelphia to combat AIDS because government's involved. But before government was involved, all the money for services to combat AIDS had to come from gay people themselves. And that meant gay people who had the money to give, and that tended to be white gay people. And they created yeah. white gay organizations and created boards of directors of white gay organizations. And those white gay organizations had a predominantly white gay staff who understood the culture of the white gay community. The black gay uh -huh. community wasn't part of that community. The, the white gay community in Philadelphia was based in the center, central city area, center city, Philadelphia. And the black gay community was spread out throughout the black, black neighborhoods throughout the rest uh, of the right. city. And they yeah. kept to themselves in the same way that gay white men kept to themselves. Oh, so when yes. those of us, such as myself and a number of black activists started organizing the black gay community around yes. AIDS, that was very threatening to yeah. what I call in that post, I call them the AIDS bureaucracy, because they yeah. were the only game in town. They were the only people doing anything about AIDS. You know, eventually yeah. when government started to spend money on AIDS, um, we were able to di direct some money to the minority organizations that were dealing with AIDS. But for most yeah. of the beginning, the first 10 years of the AIDS epidemic, AIDS epidemic there was no African-American presence. There was no Latino presence. There was no money being spent in those communities. And as a result, as time went on, the white gay proportion of people who had AIDS started to reduce and the black and Latino proportion of people who had AIDS started to increase. And the black and Latino community that was getting AIDS was not just gay people. It was a lot of people who were drug addicts. It was a lot of people who were closeted married men in the gay in the black community, especially who were having sex on the side, right? Gay sex on the side, but who were in denial about it and weren't telling their wives about it. And so suddenly we had all these women getting infected with AIDS because their husbands had been cheating on them with other men yes. and, and spreading the disease to them. It was a much more complex epidemic in the black and Latino community than it was. Plus the cultural resistance yes, to homosexuality yes. in the black and Latino community was so much more severe. It was bad in the white community, but it was so much more severe yes. in the black and Latino community. And um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, uh, during the 1980s, a guy named Wilson Good was mayor of Philadelphia. He was the first right. black mayor of Philadelphia. And my union, was very close to him. We had helped elect him mayor of Philadelphia. Yes. So that gave, and I had a great relationship with him uh -huh. and, and a, personal, a personal relationship with him. And so early on, I started harassing him. And I ran, yeah. 
uh, what was called Gay and Lesbian Friends of Wilson Good to help him yeah. get elected two times. And the, the um, so I harassed him unmercifully about the fact that city government wasn't doing anything about AIDS. And his response to me was the city was going bankrupt, which it was at the time, and that they didn't have the money to spend anything on AIDS. They needed to get the money from the federal government. And right. Ronald Reagan was president and he was not spending a lot of money on AIDS. Um, right. Reagan was in denial about AIDS and he was, he was um, his big priority was the drug war and the, and the mass incarceration of African-American people. So he wasn't worried about AIDS um, decimating communities within the black community. Um, by 1987, things had gotten so bad in Philadelphia that uh, he came to me and asked me if I would come into city government, leave the union and come work for him in city government and create an AIDS office. And he gave yeah. me $9 million, what today would be $21 million. But at right. that time it was $9 million. He gave me $9 million to create an AIDS program overnight. And for in eight months, we created a whole new bureaucracy, uh, multiracial bureaucracy with real yes. money from the government that wasn't controlled by the white gay community. And we, and we stood up a number of new organizations um, Bibashi, which was a black AIDS organization, Congresso de Latinos Unidos, Galay, other organizations, Unity Philadelphia. These were all organizations in communities of color who cared about AIDS. And we were able to invest money in those or organizations to stand them up quickly. And they still, most of those programs still exist today, whereas yes. most of the white gay AIDS communities disappeared a long time ago. Wow, this is quite, this is quite, and I'm in Philadelphia, I live in Philadelphia, I've been here okay. for 13 years, and um, I understand the stigma that's associated with HIV AIDS in, not just in Philadelphia, but you know, almost all African American or black and brown cultures in yeah. Jamaica, I'm from Jamaica, it is severe, not only are they dealing with the stigma associated with being a homosexual, but also the stigma associated with HIV AIDS, and, pop, and I think that's still a stigma, and that's still Absolutely. an issue caribbean but i wanted to ask you and you know so you are instrumental in the kind of the organization and the efforts that's being done in philadelphia it started from your vision and your work and your push in the 1987 because prior to that government was not as involved and so you that's helped right. to spearhead this yes i helped i mean i don't want to i don't want to sound like i did it all there were plenty of other people involved as you yes. see when they do this video of Eyes on the Prize. There were a number of people that were interviewed. But, but um, I think when it came to the racial issues, I was one of the few white people, certainly, right. who was involved in that effort. And, the, and to be perfectly honest, I took a care, I took advantage of my white privilege <laughs> to yes, be able yes, to make yes. things happen that other uh -huh. people couldn't make happen because they weren't white. Right. And, yes, and I think it was a good partnership that we should see more of in combating racism yes. in, in, in the society. That is so true. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head when, you know, talking about how can people use their privileges to bring about change. And, you know, recently I commented on um, Michael Moore, who said he's going to give up his citizenship. He's threatened to give, maybe he said it jokingly, he's going to give up his, his citizenship because of over the overturning of Roe. And I responded to Mr. Moore, actually. I responded to him and I said, well, you know what? 
I don't think you should give up. You give it up. You should use the power to help to create change. You know. Right. 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 Absolutely. It can get. Right. It can get. Actually, it can get exhausting though. Continuing yes, to yes. fight fight the same battles over and over again. Still to that this is- day. Today, something <laughs> like seventy percent. I mean, there's a lot fewer people who have AIDS today than there was yes. back at the beginning. Right. Um, but 70% of those who have AIDS today are black, are young black gay men. And there's uh, only that's one, still high. It's very, it's very high. Uh, and and the, there's really only one organization in the city. It's called the Colors Organization that is purposely- they The Colors? Colors, it's called, Colors Organization. Okay. Uh, it goes back to the, it was started in the 90s. Um, but they're the only people who are really doing AIDS education in the black gay community. There, there's, there's, because AIDS is no longer as big a deal as it was in the 80s and 90s. Um, yes. It's harder, harder to get attention for AIDS. And a lot of these younger black gay men, especially the ones who are homeless, or who are addicted or who are just very poor are make are making it through the day by in, by hustling by selling their bodies and yes. the, that's going that puts them at very high risk of HIV yes. disease and and there's a lot of denial about that yeah today i mean there's and a, you know we have social yeah we have social media you know we have social media right. now which is creating even more opportunities for them to to um to sell their bodies and to be um absolutely. Yeah. absolutely okay no and you said something that was very important earlier which i just want to touch on you said something you know well we can touch on it but you talk about uh the proportion of um people with hiv aids or in the 80s uh you you in terms of demographically so white people you said that their numbers was going down black and latinos their numbers went high you talk about the issue of you talk about the issue of money, who ha- but you, 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 you know, black people have so much to deal with. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make, look at income. We talk about, you know, I, write a book, I wrote a book about income inequality and poverty. And I talk right. about income in, you, the issue of income is even born out with the issue of HIV. We talk about COVID and how COVID showed um, the disparities in society, HIV, AIDS. And, you know, issues of health is always showing how um how do how the issue of racism creates that kind of disparity and how it's absolutely. affected absolutely absolutely I mean it's built in it's really built in to the to a for profit healthcare system yes you know it's like it's it's like if you don't have if you're reliant on government benefits you're not a good client for a hospital or for a medical practice you're not going to yes. be able to pay as much as somebody right. who has better insurance than that. Mm-hmm. Um, or can pay for themselves, and so we have a healthcare system that's developed that is again, just like it was in the '80s around AIDS, fundamentally yes. against poor people. It's, yes, it's not, it's not so much racist as it is against poor people. The problem is most of the people of color are poor people, <laughs> and so yes, they yes. have this double whammy that hits them, and it's hard to it's hard to just it's hard to make a in the white gay community back in the 80s, the reason why they had a hard time getting medical care and, and getting money to be spent by the government on AIDS was because of homophobia. People were oh, yeah, prejudiced yeah. against gay people. 
the once the epidemic started spreading in communities of color, it, it was it was it, the old fashioned racist attitudes of government came into play. Um, yes. And the the it wasn't and in the in those communities of color, there were a whole slew of problems. It wasn't just AIDS. The white gay community was well off generally. Yeah, out the, the people who were open about their homosexuality, they were people right. who could afford to do that. Um, yes. In the black gay community, it was regular, ordinary people who were getting AIDS, and the 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 problems they had included AIDS, but were not limited to AIDS. Right. Yes. And that's yes, a big yes. difference between what was happening to a, to white gay men who had white privilege in their side. And black gay men didn't have white privilege on their side. They had to worry about housing. They had to worry about education. They had to worry about all the things poor people have to worry about because they don't have enough resources. And that wasn't the problem in the white gay community. So the the it was no it was no no uh, coincidence that the white gay community treated those of us who were drawing attention to AIDS among poor people and among people of color as, as re- we were being leftist radicals because uh, we, kept, we kept talking about poverty and we kept talking about yes. and, and they didn't and they didn't know how to deal with it. They, didn't, you know, they, were, they were talking about white privilege. There was no community yes. more white privileged than the white gay community in the 70s and 80s. Yes. Wow, that's quite interesting, and um, I'm learning some. I'm learning, you know. You find I said you uh, there is this the issue of racism is what within the church. Yeah. So of course, so you know, and that's the place that's supposed to be pure, and then of course, so it's quite so you know it's not far fetched to 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 kind of to to hear stories of this. I mean, you I could see that happening if it's happening in the church. I guess it can happen anyway. Yes. Yes. Um, Absolutely. You mentioned the I, church. I mean, the uh, yes, yeah. Let's, when, when I was when I was running the AIDS office for the city, we tra- we we hired a, a guy who was very active in in one of the major churches whose son had died from AIDS, and we hired yes. him to help us talk to ministers to try to right. get them to talk about AIDS in their congregations, and we even got to the point where we offered to pay ministers if they would let. Mm him come and talk to them, talk to their congregations on a Sunday yes. morning, which worked. They were willing to do it if they were getting paid. And the uh, and and wow. the and, and what we found was there were basically two types of ministers. Those who believed it was up to them to decide who was a good Christian and those who believed it was up to Jesus to decide who was a good yes. Christian. Right. Those who believed it was up to Jesus were willing to give yeah. the benefit of the doubt that maybe these gay people were okay. It wasn't okay. up to them to judge. Yes. And, and, and we've touched that nerve in the black church community in the late 80s and early, early 90s as well. And I, I used to, I used to uh, be invited sometimes myself to talk to black congregations about, about what was going on with AIDS. And I would tell them at the beginning of my talk every time that they shouldn't be hearing this message from me because there were people in the congregation this morning who have HIV and they need to speak up. 
They have to have the courage to speak up. Yes. Because you can deny what I'm saying, but what I'm telling you is my community of white gay men is dying right and left. And your community is dying right and left too, but you just don't know and you just don't care. And, right. and, and people were willing to hear it from me. I was surprised. They were willing to let me as a white gay man lecture them in a black church. I thought that was very interesting. Wow, it was, yes. And um, so, and this is quite, and this is quite, here we are in the 80s, um, 70s, 80s, you're working as a, I guess you were very young at the time. What, you know, what, um, so they invited you to come in and what was people, what was people, what were people saying at the time when they saw this young man coming in? How old were you at the time when you started this I work? was about 35. Okay. Yes, um, yes. The, um, I think it was so weird that in some ways I was more acceptable. Yes, yes. I mean, it helped, it helped that I was a friend of Wilson Goods and he was the mayor of Philadelphia. And the right. black community was very proud that it had its first black mayor and he had endorsed me. So that made me more acceptable. I was also very active and visible in the black community because of my work with the hospital workers union, which was yes. a very large predominantly black union. Um, so I had things going for me, I have to admit. But um, I think they also related to the passion I brought to it. You know, yes. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't trashing them for being homophobic. I just said, right. I was saying to them, whether you like it or not, your sons and your sons mostly are going to die from this disease because you're yes. not willing to help them stay alive. And it's like, yes. should they die because they're gay? You know, and, and people would argue with me about those kinds of things and throw yes. the Bible at me and all sorts of other stuff. But, but at the time, especially, I was much more arrogant than I am today. And so <laughs> I, think, I think the fact that I put myself through it, that they respected the fact that I was willing to put myself as the only white man in the church and the only yes. white gay man, certainly, in the church, that um, I was willing to put myself in the midst of it. I think they were both thought that was very weird and didn't understand it and were willing to respect that it took some courage to do that. Oh, wow, this is kind of, you said, you know, you said earlier that you got um, $9 million from um, the mayor at the time who, and it's quite interesting that it wasn't until Philadelphia got a black mayor that um, yeah. you, they really got the funding and started doing some work in terms of tackling HIV AIDS in the African-American community. It's quite interesting. But where yes. did they get the money? Did they get it from the feds or did they get it from the city? No, um, I don't, I've never known where he actually got the money from. Okay. Uh, the city literally was going bankrupt at the time. So I think his feeling was, we're already spending money we don't have. We might as well spend some money we don't have on something yes. important. Yes, I honestly yes. think that was his attitude. Yes. And the, fortunately, right around that time, it was 1990, I got that job in 1987 and kept it until 1990. In 1990, finally, uh, when George W. George H. W. Bush was president, they uh, passed a law in Congress called the Ryan White Act, where they started yes. spending federal money on AIDS. So it got a lot, it got a lot easier after that law was passed. Was that after Reagan? Was that after Reagan? That was after Reagan. After okay. Reagan, yes. Yeah, it would never have happened when Reagan was mayor, was governor. 
Yes. He just didn't care. He didn't even mention until the end of his administration. He never even mentioned the word AIDS. Yes. Yes. He was too busy um, putting black people in jail. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, he was. And, um, you know, I, some time ago, you, I was reading a posting you did on LinkedIn and you talked about housing in Philadelphia and many young people are, you know, young people are getting older now and then they're, they're becoming adults, young adults, but housing is a sure issue and poverty is a sure issue that you, you see the rise in poverty and so on. And yes. young, people, young people are prostituting themselves. We talked, we touched on this a little bit more as a way to, for them, the only way out is through um, yes. having uh, and doing it and, and unsafe practices. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the, I'm co-chair of an organization called Philly Homes for Youth, which is advocating on behalf of homeless young people in Philadelphia. There's, 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 our belief is that there are about a thousand young people, meaning people under the age of 24 and under, who are yes. homeless, literally, literally homeless. They're living, they may not be on the street every night because they might be living couch to couch with friends that they have or whatever. Yes. But um, the city is in total denial about homeless yes. youth and spends a little bit of money. There are a couple of, of home um, um, shelters specifically for young people, but nothing like the need that we have. And um, our organization, Philly Home for Youth Coalition, asked the city, which got $42 million of COVID money, one-time mm-hmm. COVID money from the city. Um, I mean, from the federal government. Yeah. We asked them to spend 20% of that money on homeless youth because we believe 20% of the homeless population is young people. Yeah. And they said, no, they're not, doing, they're not willing to do that. Wow. And, I don't, and, and it's mostly because these are young, predominantly people of color again. A lot of LGBT people, a lot of LGBT youth are homeless because they're thrown out of their homes because they are because yes. they're LGBT. Um, mm-hmm. The, the uh, city government sees nobody caring about these kids except for the small, few, few of us who are advocating for it. And yes. so they, um, they think they can deny it and not do wow. anything about it. And we're still fighting that battle. That's, a, that's, that's going to be a long battle, but we're going to eventually get through to them. And there's a yes. new election for mayor next year. And we're yes. already plotting and planning on how we're going to make homeless youth one of the major issues of that campaign. Making homeless, and I'm going to ensure I highlight this. Making So there's an election in Philadelphia, a mayoral election in Philadelphia next year. And we want to make, we want to make homeless, uh, make shelters or homelessness an issue amongst yeah. our, the youth population. Okay. And I'm going to make, and you know, we talk about, I know we are talking about eyes on the prize, but we talk about homelessness and um, and I say, and we talk about gun violence in Philadelphia, also the rise in carjackings and it's just a lot that's going on in Philadelphia that people are fearful. I live in Germantown. I talk to people every day on the streets. People are fearful. All, that's all you hear every single day. How are you? Oh, oh my God, do you see what's going on in Philadelphia? It's, be safe. Be, and that's what you hear. Yeah. And then 
a lot of the younger people are committing the crime. There are a lot of yeah. younger people. And I'm saying, to, and many of them don't have, the issue of homelessness should go, has to include not just the shelter over their heads. It has to include the issue of having parents or some kind of um, guidance in, within the home because it will help to guide, you know, I have a situation um, where I've seen some young people. I mentor a lot of young people as well. And they live from, many of them have live in households they don't belong to. There's nobody to guide them. They leave when they want. They do whatever they need to. And, um, and they struggle to get by. And I'm saying to you, if they had a proper shelter, a proper home, they will, not only are they going to have shelter, but they also have parenting or guidance or yes, yes. help. And that's, I mean, there's a whole infrastructure yeah. in a healthy community that healthy does community. not exist in yeah. many neighborhoods in Philadelphia. I live in Germantown as well. We've had two, oh. two, two murders on our block in the last three months. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And if yes. you think, and I live in this, and the neighborhood we're in is predominantly an African American community. And, yeah. you know, I'm a 70 year old white man. And I have to admit, when I get into the car every morning, I feel I made it. I yes. made it to the car. You know, yes, yes. Um, it's a real, it's a real crisis. And I think, again, I don't think American society is built to care about young people of color or young poor people. It's yeah. like you're in the suburbs, you know, in the white suburbs. The young people have a good education. They have more resources they're able to have a better chance of succeeding. But then especially yes. in the big poor cities, many of those young people, white and black, who are poor, are, don't have any opportunity to succeed. And so as a result, they take advantage, they, they do what they need to do to survive because there's, there's no way out. They see no way out. And, yes. that's, and, and, a good poor, and a lot of the homeless youth that we deal with um, uh, we have about 60 homeless youth who are members of our coalition. And what yes. they go through every day is like astounding to me that they, that they even can smile because yeah. there's so many pressures on them and so little opportunity and so little goes their way. And yes. I, I can understand why people get, why those young people get desperate and depressed yeah. and, 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 and feeling hopeless where, yes. where things like, being disrespected is a reason to kill somebody because yes. it's just so much it's just because of the world that they're living in. Yes, that is so true. And um I just I'm grateful and happy for the work that you are doing um in Philadelphia and by extension the US and by extension the world. And um and you know I have some more questions. I have another question as it relates to I let's get back to eyes on the prize. And I wanted to ask you a question. I said now you were interviewed by HBO, but is it an HBO or PBS production, Eyes on the Prize? It's an HBO production. It's not uh, a PBS production. It's not P PBS. No, PBS did the original series, but this uh, one's an HBO series. Okay, okay, okay. And, um, but there's nothing, I looked, there's, I couldn't find anything about the HBO series on the web. So when I put my posting on LinkedIn, the only link I could make was to the PBS series. Yes, so and that's was, why I got. That's probably why I got 
probably why I confused you a little bit about that. Yeah, I saw PBS. I'm like, so I wasn't sure. And then um, I did some reading before um, I was doing some research, what um, watched the film Eyes in the Prize again about the civil rights movement. Um, by the way, I said I was going to ask you a very important question. I said, you were talking about what's going on in the African-American community. And when I watched the beginning of the beginning of, and I, you know, to be honest, I can I, I went to HBO Max. I saw right. it on HBO Max and I wasn't sure if it was PBS. It never really said PBS. So this probably, this is part of the new series, but I think it was from the old series. It was in black and white. Yeah. So the old series is the only series that's out there. And it was originally okay. broadcast on PBS. Oh, okay. Back in the eighties when the first, when they first came out, it was on PBS. Now you right. can get, Eyes on the Prize on the regular, you know, video platforms. Okay, okay. Videos. Now, the, you know, I watched the opening of the first episode, first series. Listen to this. Um, the woman said, we wanted something for ourselves and our children. So we took a chance on our lives. That's the opening line to Eyes on the Prize. Um, and I said to myself, why did they put that scene as the opening scene? And I think I know why, because in a sense, it has the feeling as if this is the theme, the message, how Blacks work to secure rights. In a sense, they wanted something for themselves and their children. So they were willing to take a chance on their lives. Right. But in a sense, you say that in the 60s or going into the 70s, after, after we got civil rights, it's as if it lost traction and steam. And I am looking at this statement where this woman said, we wanted something for ourselves, you know, this African-American woman, we wanted something for ourselves. And we took our chance, we took chance in our life. In a sense, Black, African-Americans or Black people has, have always been taking chances on, on their lives. All they know yeah. is how to take chances on, on their lives in order to get ahead or in order to get something. And people are willing to prostitute themselves and to expose, and you know, and and people will tell you, I'm doing it for the money, you know, I, you know, and there's no thinking about safety or anything of the sort. And so, you know, younger people, I'm wondering if they, that kind of attitude come from that cycle, that culture of gambling ones, willing to gamble, to, to gamble, take a chance on your life in order to make life work for you, in order to live, you know? Well, when you don't think you have a lot to lose. Yeah. And you're more well, well, more likely to take a chance. I mean, yes. I think the reality is, I mean, in my lifetime, there was a time in my youth where somebody like you could not have succeeded in the way that you've succeeded. Yes, you yes, know, yes. It, it, it just wouldn't have been permitted. Right. Or if, if it was permitted, you would be the unicorn. You would be the one person standing yes. out. You know? Right. There is a black middle class now. There's even a black upper middle class now. The black presence in the media is much greater than it used to be uh, yeah. in Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of progress that yeah. has been made. That's that can't be doubted. But there's a lot of people being left behind as well. Yeah. And now the problem, the problem that young younger Black people and, and poor Black people face is not only the racism of the white community, but the yes. inability or the unwillingness 
of black people who have made it mm-hmm. to take their side. You know, it's like it's like the old pull up, pull yourself up by your bootstrap stuff. Everybody's yeah. supposed to have equal opportunity. And we're in yes. denial about the fact that people don't, in fact, have equal opportunity. Yes. And, yeah. and that if everybody did have equal opportunity, you could justify it a little bit more why we don't do something about poverty. It's like if it's your own, if it's your own fault for being poor, then that's one thing. But most poor people have no way out. Mm. And, and I think the larger middle class community, both black and white, is unwilling to accept that that's true. So I believe it's true. I honestly, I work in the child welfare system now. And the the child welfare system is another racist system. Something, you know, in Philadelphia, about the black population of Philadelphia is about 45, 50%. The number of kids in the child welfare system who are black is closer to 80%. Yeah. And their crime is being poor. That's the reason, that's the reason why the child welfare system takes them from those families because they can't care for their kids. And it's not their fault they can't care for their kids. There's just not enough money. There's not enough jobs. There's not enough resources. There's not even enough government programs. And the, um, and I, so I think there's a whole underclass. I mean, if you want to talk about Karl Marx and all that kind of stuff, he predicted there was going to be this underclass that society just threw away. And I think that part has come true. Wow, this is, you know, I, I hopefully I get a chance to talk. You're in Germantown, hopefully I get a chance, because I also want to talk to you about um, child welfare in Philadelphia, but that's for another topic, because I, child welfare is dear to my heart. Um, I spent most of my time working in, I was a case manager, I worked at Bethana, a core case manager, and I worked at Bethana. Yeah, oh, really? I worked, yes, I worked oh, at wow. Bethana. I worked at um, Karen Hamilton. I worked as a high IHIPS case manager in home protective services. I used to go, and the thing is, I went. I was in, I was studying anthropology as well, so I love this job because you go into people's homes and their lives. You get to find out what is going on. And I also was an FGDM family group decision making and a YTC okay. facilitator and coordinator. So you know, I worked wow. at almost various levels. Yes. In, um, so that's why I said I was I follow you I'm very familiar and I would love because I am I am concerned about child welfare I have ideas that I would love to put to you I spoke with a young man today and I said he's about 24 and I said to him I asked him this I was at the tennis court and I said in Germantown by Albury if you know where that is I said let me ask you a question and you might know where that is right yeah. um, I said to him what is wrong with Philadelphia and he said to me ah a lot. It's the violence and the killings is just too, and he's 24. And then I said to him, okay, what, what is causing it? And he said, people are growing up angry. And a lot of people in the, and then, but, and he alluded to the foster care program and yeah. how people in these programs, is if, you know, they have these programs, but they are angry and they are taking out their anger on others. So I was very interested in the answer. So I said to him, why did you, okay, I said to him, why did you answer like that? Um, do you, are you affected or are you related or connected in any way to the foster care system where you could say, speak so powerfully? He said, yes. He said, yes, I can speak powerfully because my brother is, is from that particular and he wow. is angry all the time and I love him a lot, but he's creating problems for 
people in our community. So I said, okay, but what can you do to solve the problem? And he stopped. He said, wow, I've never really thought beyond that point. And, I, and so I said, probably that's some of the discussions that we need to have. Okay, fine, you have to, let us have this. Because, and then I started talking to him. He said, wow, because here's a young man who is concerned as well, but he doesn't know how to. And I used to do mentorship as well. And I was a, a guru on mentorship. I said to him, you may not be able to do big things, but in your own little community, you right. could encourage some of these young people. Some of them, you know, talk with them, encourage them to invest in their lives. You know, you don't have to give them money in a way, but let them know you're there, provide guidance, talk with them and so on and so forth. Sometimes some of these young men, they need that. And he said, wow, that's true. I've never thought about that. And that's so, and I said, we're going to, and I said to him, I continue the conversation. He said, he, because that's, we can also empower people in communities. And FGDM was about empowering the families, empowering people to be able to, but of course it, it needed more strengthening. Okay. But, yeah. uh, but it was a start. Uh, but what, what, what do you have to, um, any, any comments as it relates to, um, you know, foster care or child youth and family services and, you know, how we can, you know, speak, how that speaks to the whole issue of what's going on with the epidemic or in Philadelphia? Well, that's another whole Yes, uh, you know what? We, we won't be able to touch that right now. I'll get to that another time. So we can talk, and I would love to sit down and talk with you over coffee, one of the, at Germantown Expressio Bar, wherever you are. But that would be, this is a great conversation for us to have. But as we get, we only have an hour, and I think I only have five minutes. Okay. Or four, three minutes, actually. So I wanted to ask a question. And the question is, Black scholars are revisiting how we view the slave or the, or the Black man in, or the history of Black people in terms of moving away from a victim to a hero approach. And I'm saying, uh, as, we look at, as we look at this film that you were just a part of, um, do you see the the history of black people as it relates to the fighting to bring about change with as it relates to the, the AIDS epidemic? Um, do what do you see? Can you see any kind of vic, moving away from victim? Can, can you see it, the hero of the black man in this? Oh, I think I think today there's um, much less. I mean, uh, again, it depends on your socioeconomic status and how yeah. much agency you think you have in your life but the yeah. I, I see a lot more uh people from my perspective as a white man you know working in a predominantly black organization even today yeah. i think there's a lot more of a sense of of power right you know i mean there's a perception that they don't they that black people don't have the same power i have there's right, no such right. thing as black pri- privilege, but, <laughs> but the but to be able to have a little bit more control over your life, to be able to be willing to speak out for yes. yourself. I mean, again, in in when I was growing up, black people were silent. Yeah, typically, yeah, because uh, it was too scary to speak out. Now yes. people are speaking out all the time, and that's a really good thing. I mean, the whole reaction to the George Floyd murder was something that would never have happened yes. in my youth. Um, so I think there is progress definitely being made. Right. Yes. But yes. I think yes. the thing we have to remember is that still people are being left behind. 
and they're not being left behind just by white people. They're being left behind by black people as well. So yes. people who are people people who are sick. It's getting less and less. It's still a fundamentally racist dynamic, racism dynamic. But the bottom line is, it's not just racism. It's also about privilege, and it's also about yes. about having enough money to take care yes. of yourself and mm. wanting to protect that and not not identify any longer with that twenty four year old young black kid you were talking to. It's like yeah. it's, that's a different that's a different world, and I don't want to be part of it. I mean, I, yeah. I and I think that's happening among white people and black people. That's just not a yes, thing. yes, 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 yes. That is true, and I've always said that we have to abandon race because race is a pseudoscience. I've always said that, <laughs> but because we are all one, because I believe in the unit, I believe in. But of course, we know that there is um, the issue of racial history in the past. But finally, the final question. I was going to, you know, in my book, Neoliberalism, part two of section two, entitled Resistance, chapter 11 to 12, looks at cinema and globalization in terms of analyzing how effective a tool cinematic film is in creating change. And um, I referenced Dirty Pretty Things and Life and Death, looking at how um, those films capture and tell and highlight the issues and stories of those people who are silent and the injustices are being done. So my question is, and I say, oh, and I said in the book, in the book, Neoliberalism, Globalization, my book there, I said, man has searched for truth. And according to Quandis Collison, film, art, and media have reflected this eternal search for truth. And Professor Clifford asserted that documentary is one of the major achievements of cinematic, of, of cinema and film, because of how film, because according, because according to Vertov, because of how films seek for truth or that kind of realism right. and they use revolutionary style and so on. So my question is, um, do you think Eyes on the Prize and film like these and even the film that you're going to be part of, I mean, of the next series, is there, can, is it believable? Um, does it search for truth? Does it provide truth? Is it, does it speak and um, and in terms of and the sources can you know what are the sources and of course I already know the source because first of all I thought you were a producer first but now you are a source and you lived it you experienced it and you spearheaded but but I'm still posing the question to you does it search the truth in a sense does it is it believable and the sources now what are its sources? Well, um, I mean in terms of film and yeah that stuff I think the um, especially for the younger generation you know video is how they communicate with each other and yes. the the I think that can be very empowering it can also be disempowering I mean people yes. get hurt sometimes on TikTok and things like that <laughs> yes. but, um, but the reality is I think that the generations of African American people beyond that followed the generation that I grew up in um, were able to imagine success and yeah. self-efficacy and, self and agency in the way, in a way that previous African-American populations were not able to. And that's yes. because they could see it in the media. Um, they see a lot of unrealistic stuff in the media as well, you know. And so you have a lot of these young people thinking they're going to be rich rap stars or something. 
Yes, you know? yes. It, it yes, can go exactly. too far. But the uh-huh. general, it's a whole different world today yeah. that on TV alone, there, there's, there tends to be um, uh, uh, interracial media most of the yes. time in commercials, right. in TV shows. There's always the token black person. You know, yes. at, least at least they're there. And they generally yes. are successful or they're as successful, at least as the other white people, the white people who are in the show. Yes. You know, those kinds of images, I think, are critically important to give people a sense of hope that it right. really can happen. Right. Um, I mean, I think I grew up as an activist because in the 60s on television, there were activists. The news yes. was covering all these activists and I wanted to be one of them. And I believed it was possible to be one of them because I saw it on screen. And I think the young, for young African-American people, especially young, poor African-American people, they can see potential way out by seeing what they see in the media. Of course, the media is also full and the, and the, and the, and the video games and everything else are also full of violence yes. and of uh, teaching people other things about what yes. the possibilities are. And we have to yes. combat that in some way. Wow, this is powerful. Thank you so much. And any final thoughts? And well, my I know final I thought is that I thought you were crazy when you reached out to me on LinkedIn. It's just, this is just <laughs> one of those crazy people who pops off all the time. I'm glad to know that you're not that. Oh, no, definitely not. You're an actual intellectual. I kind of like that. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And um, and as I wrap up, hope I'm, uh, when we finish with the interview, it should be available either tonight or tomorrow. And I'll also type everything that you say and publish it as an article. It should be available at neoliberal.com, RonaldoCMcKenzie.com. It will be available in my LinkedIn commentary. And um, But this is quite powerful. I love it. And I'm going to send you my direct number when we're okay. finished with it so that you know, we can communicate, definitely. And now, oh, uh, yes, and, um, and did I give you the final words? No, you didn't. And well, you have the me, are you giving me the final word? Well, I'm going to probably close out by saying something, but okay, before I give you the final word, one more thing. Thank you for listening to this great interview and this amazing gentleman who has been very instrumental in helping to turn the tide in Philadelphia as it relates to the HIV AIDS epidemic. And how we, and not just that, he's also instrumental in working and developing child and family services and how we think about care. So that is amazing. And um, so we are happy. And just so you know, this show, this show, the Neoliberal Round podcast, celebrates one year this week. This is our 71st show. And um, on Thursday, yes, we are one year. And um, thank you guys so much for listening to us. We are becoming, a t- we are top ranked in Canada and the US and we're growing. And um, we, I started it last year and um, it has not been easy much challenges but so far we have overcome some of the challenges and we continue to provide the show free of cost and for those of us who want to donate to the show you can donate at https colon forward slash forward slash anchor a-n-c-h-o-r dot f-m slash the neoliberal slash support and we are available on google podcast apple um, podcast amazon Music. The, and we just got onto Amazon Music. The Alexa app. Pod- Sorry, I'm having trouble connecting to the internet. It looks like an issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I am so sorry. 
That is, that is my um, Alexa, which I did not tell you. But yes, interrupted my ending. But yes, but we're on Amazon, we're on Alexa. Alexa just spoke with me. And, uh, but we're also available on Stitcher and, and, and Spotify and, um, and Radio Public. If you are not in the US or Canada, you can listen to us anywhere in the world. And if so, thank you so much, guys. Continue to support us, and we're looking forward. By the way, coming up next, we're going to be talking with John Anthony Castro, the U.S. 2024 presidential candidate, who will be giving us an update as to the filing. He's going to be filing a federal election. He's going to be filing a suit against the Federal Election Commission, and Donald Trump saying he's ineligible. And um, that's we're about 15 days from the date, July 25th is the date, I believe. So we're coming close to that date. And that's about it. And the, oh, and on Thursday or Friday, I will be interviewing Steve Shagnon, who is one of the founding members of Tennis Philly. And I play tennis as well. But I'm going to be meet, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to be interviewing him about the program that's going on in, in Philadelphia as it relates to tennis. And I think I also want to ask him how can we can develop tennis as a sport amongst African Americans because I have a black and brown communities because I have I have an idea about how we could do that. But thank you so much. And now the final word to our main man. Who uh, let me tell you, I, this guy is amazing. I follow you just so you know. I read your stuff, and you are passionate. You have a passion. You are using your privilege to really promote things that help the vulnerable, and that is powerful. Well, thank you for that. 